Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Dining Room Ghost by Megan Taylor. Every night the woman is there. Every single night as you follow the crooked Victorian steps that wind down from the nursery with the baby hot and heavy on your shoulder, you know that she will be there, waiting. She is always in the same place, in the dining room. She keeps to her own particular corner, hovering with the shadows beside the ticking grandmother clock that came with the bricks and mortar. Another period feature you tell your husband when he phones. Always she stands in that same grey spot, with her head bowed and her shoulders hunched, her hands knotted at her thighs. Beneath her long dress her feet are bare and stained, between the dirt that strings up from her soles like seaweed, her ankle bones shine. They are so pale as to be almost blue. Her toenails glint like broken glass. Her feet are her most distinctive feature. The patches through the grime are the only sections of her skin that you can see clearly. Her tangled hands are sketchy, roped against her cloud-like dress, and because of the way which her head droops, you have never once yet seen her face. For many nights, you have dreaded that. That moment when her head will rise, when finally you'll feel her gaze on yours. You have dreaded it so sharply, so repeatedly, that at times the fear has twisted as a blade might. And get over it, you think then. Just get it done. Although perhaps it's simply because her hair is so unnerving. While she holds the rest of her so perfectly still, those hanging curls hint at motion, so that you find yourself imagining lice and squirming beetles, a darker flicker between the tangles. If you were able to hear them, they would click and whisper. They'd rustle like bin bags, like the things that you might find in bin bags scuttling rot. Sometimes you feel the itch of them on your own scalp, their countless catching furry legs. Every night, count those steps, thirteen, twelve, eleven, ten. You see the woman even before you dining room, you're already picturing her as you concentrate descending oh so carefully, because the staircase is steep and narrow. The house is spine, it's as chilly as bone, it aches with its age beneath your own bare feet, and of course you tread cautiously, your arms are full as your head is full with the baby. You have no spare hand to clutch at the banister, scarcely a gap for proper thought around his crying. If the woman in the dining room were to make any sound at all, you'd never hear it. Although by step four or step three, even while you're focusing on that final splintered corner, you can smell her. Her scent is powerful, both beautiful and repugnant. It is smoke, and it is autumn. She is the mulch that hides beneath the golden fall of leaves, and she is carbon. She is pink match heads scorched black, and the cold hollow of a long dead hearth. She is the ashes there piled in cobwebbed layers, as fine and feathery as lace. The woman smells of everything that your baby doesn't. As he reels against your breasts, he is all hot, dreaming flesh and wet toweling, thrumming with such ferocious, beating life. Nevertheless, you can imagine how very easily his sense might be consumed by hers, lapping over the pair of you. 
sooty tide. Well, at least you have company, your husband tells you. His voice, kept deliberately light, creeps tentative through the crackle on the line. But never for long. You have tried to explain how quickly your ghost can vanish, fluttering out like ancient celluloid, scratching back into the wall's dim grain, and how her disappearing can at times be as disturbing as her presence. And yet, you laugh into the receiver as if you're not scared. It's an odd sort of laughter, though, giddy and gulped. And with the long distance you hear it echoing back you, your giggles transformed into something strange, a stranger's laughter. It's as if there is another woman, yet another woman, trapped amid the static, or else holed up, even further away, in your husband's hotel room. Isn't it possible that he has company of his own? Lately, when you reach the dining room, you pretended to ignore your waiting ghost, as you pretend that what you're doing downstairs is soothing your frantic, screaming son. The hard chill of the dark, lacquered parquet is undeniable. It rises up through your souls, so much less giving than the creaking steps, and yet you walk single-mindedly across the room. You turn on the stereo, attempting to swamp the crying or at least locate some different rhythm underneath it, and while you do so, you no longer look directly towards the grandmother clock, but only hold that corner of the room in the corner of your eye. In that manner, in that manner, you're sometimes able to keep the woman, to contain her, You'd rather know exactly where she is. Clutching the baby and fumbling your steps as you attempt to dance, you have feared her flying at you, unreeling like some devil in a horror film, attacking. But as your son battles against you, his crying intensifying, you wonder if it's the woman who is angry. Before the baby was born, when you first came to live in this house, this most desirable of properties, so different from the Lego-like rooms where you grew up, the woman wasn't there. Or if she was, you couldn't see her, as your husband still can't see her on his fleeting visits between work. Back then in the summer, every elegant room, every corner had been dappled with light. Dust motes swam like cotton fluff and twinkled as they turned. And wherever shadows did manage to fall, there were gentle things, velvety, laden with your hope, as your body was laden, tingling with your life, and more. It's a struggle to conjure that time back now, to believe in it. The house then so sensuous around you, and how you drifted through it, safe in your proud growing body, your shared body, all of it carried so carefully, that august warmth. It's difficult now that your body feels full of blackness, now that there's nothing but black in that space where the baby isn't any longer. Even as he was being born, you seem to sense it pouring through you, a clumped emptiness rushing to fill that gap. It makes no sense, and yet, so strongly had you felt it, that you'd expected the blood that seeped out of you to be black too, blacker than mud. Instead, it was scarlet, crimson, as bright as a balloon. It had surprised you, as your milk continues to surprise you with its pallor. It creeps out of you as you danced, this milk that the baby wants so furiously, so feverishly, but fights to drink. It stains the baggy t-shirt that you wear to sleep in. It leaves white, wilting petals on all of your clothes. You first glimpsed your ghost on the night that you returned from the hospital, your son just four days old. There she was, in her corner, a streak of cold, of frozen time, beside the clock's tick-tock. She was exactly the same then as now, that matted hair, those glassy feet. 
You didn't scream that first night, but you did flee clumsily, coddling back up the twisted steps back to your bedroom to where your husband had been then, sleeping. You woke him. There's a woman, you said, a a ghost downstairs. Yet practically right away you found yourself smiling, instinctively returning your husband's bleary grin, his shaking head. It was ludicrous. You both knew it. Especially coming from you, when you'd always been the clear-minded one, bold, pushing for this beautiful house and then pushing for the pregnancy, always knowing exactly what you wanted and then making it happen. It's sleep deprivation, your husband had said, escaping dreams. And as you nodded, he'd reached across the covers, eased the wriggling baby from the clamp of your arms. Poor thing, he said, poor frightened thing. Except the next night, of course, the woman had been there again, and the next, and despite your fear, as whole months have passed, you have come to study her. She remains dreadful, but you're fascinated. Her pristine stillness her precarious bones. Inside the smudged hang of her dress, she's scarecrow thin, and you have considered the possibility that she isn't a ghost after all, but a witch, or perhaps some kind of combination, a witch ghost. You suggested to your husband yesterday evening when he called, and then you tried not to hear his replying sigh. It has seemed natural, essential even, the way in which the woman has become such a long-standing joke except that maybe by now the joke is wearing through, becoming a tired story like the others you recite, tales about rambling, strolls in the bare-treed park and the support of parent groups and happiness. Far away your husband sighs and again and again you hear your own strange laugh and nothing changes. The baby cries. The woman waits. You do not share her patience. As you dance your ridiculous dining room dance, clenching your son tighter when he heats and buckles as the crying continues impossibly on and on, it strikes you. Perhaps she isn't patient. She isn't waiting. Maybe for all these nights. It has been you. You who has felt the dread warp and transform twisting into anticipation. You in this dining room sensing hunger, your own hunger, you realise your eagerness for the woman to look up, to see you, for the connection to be made. With your fingers scrabbling around your squalling son, you understand, get it over with, just get it done. And at last you can imagine it so cleanly, so clearly, how you will set your sadness down and how, in exchange, you might be granted silence. You think of this house without the telephone ringing and free of your own laughter, free of his screaming. This is what you have been longing for, her silence wrapped about you as soft as fog. You can feel how close it is. So close, you see it happen. Your damp hands opening, the letting go. The baby finally lying still before her dirty, shining feet. So that was The Dining Room Ghost by Megan Taylor. And it is our great privilege that we've got an interview with Megan Taylor when she talks about the story and her influences. So here's Megan Taylor. So, Megan, welcome to the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. We've just heard your story, The Dining Room Ghost. 
And I want to talk about that story. But first of all, I'd just like to know a little bit about yourself. Hello, Tony. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and thank you so much for uh, recording my story. I'm reading it so beautifully. Yes, my name's Megan Taylor. I'm the author of four novels and a short story collection and lots of other short stories. Um, quite a few of them of a spooky or dark variety. <laughs> I live in, in Nottingham. Um, so I grew up in South London. What made you go to Nottingham? Oh, it was with my ex-partner's job, actually. But I was such a southerner, I didn't even really know where Nottingham was at the time. I'm very ashamed <laughs> to say. <laughs> City of caves. Though. I remember going to Nottingham and being really impressed by the caves underneath it, particularly under the castle. And uh, there's the pub, the very it's built into the rock wall, isn't it? That ye old trip to Jerusalem. Yeah, um, great caves and lots of great pubs. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a lovely city, and I've I've felt very at home here. There's a very excellent writing community here as well, which have been incredibly welcoming. Do you support yourself from your writing? No, I do. I well, I work part time as uh, I'm running creative writing workshops and courses um, for various people, like Writing East Midlands and the universities and things. But I also have a day job another part-time job as a school library assistant so lots of book related things generally and I mean do you think that it's essential for a writer to read absolutely absolutely I, I read all the time and I'm not really sure why you would want to be a writer if you didn't love reading no, no absolutely yeah the what about the short story genre Has that, that's been a particular uh, focus of yours Yes, yeah, I, I, I love writing my novels as well, but um, short stories, um, I think they're a particularly fine art and a tricky art. Um, and yes, when I've been running short story courses, it's surprising how many people don't actually read short stories. They can't name a favourite collection or a favourite writer or even a favourite short story. And I'm not really sure why they want to be doing that if that's not what they're into, because I think it's an often neglected genre short stories and it's often one of the finest. Absolutely. Very different from writing a novel though. Very different, very different. The focus is, with a novel you kind of have to live with it and you sort of know you're going to have to live with it. And even though both of those forms come to me from character, usually in the first instant, you kind of, you let you you know those characters in a much more thorough way with a novel, but I think there's something you have to be a lot more focused with a short story and probably clearer in a different way about what you want to do. So that leads us neatly onto the dining room ghost, which has well four characters if you include the baby, Ooh. Uh, the husband who's yeah. distant, the ghost. Yeah. And the, the narrator herself. Yeah. Unless I've missed one. No, that's that's quite right. That's quite right. Um, and I really like the way you've included both the baby and the ghost as characters in your description. Yeah, yeah no, they seem to be. I mean, the baby has, well, they both have a role to play, don't they? They do. They do. So what was the inspiration? What's the, what's the background to that story? Well, I wrote it several years ago. It was in, um, it was, first published in my collection that came out in 2014 but I'd written it not that long before that 
So the inspiration probably came from longer ago, just looking back to those sleepless nights of having children, though I never felt anything as extreme, thankfully, no. as the character in my story. But I do, I do to have sort of sleepless nights. And I do remember when I first moved into the house I'm living in now, which is, though it's Victorian, it's not as possibly grand as the story, in, as the house in the story. And I do remember imagining seeing a woman standing in the corner of the dining room mm-hmm. as I was carrying my baby down the stairs. I think I was half asleep. And that came back to me years later when it came to writing this story and it grew from there. So the, the fact that the house is a dream house and it seems that the things that she's got are the things she's aspired to have, that the wonderful house, the baby, but then when she gets them, there's a bit of a twist. Well, uh, she's, yes, she's obviously struggling and, you know, and there are questions about what the ghost actually is in this story, mm-hmm. um, whether it's possibly an embodiment of her loneliness or her darker desires, maybe sort of a part of herself, her shadow. Yeah, I, I, I like that ambiguity when it comes to ghost stories a lot. Absolutely. And so when I read it, I, I, you know, I don't spot myself by my writing and all by the podcast. And so um, I'm a psychiatric nurse, so I've worked with women who have had postnatal depression and, in yeah. fact, the postpartum psychosis as well, when people actually lose contact with reality. Yeah. So this was home territory for me, really. This, this is these are, I've come across things like this. Wow. That's, that's, um, that's um, as sad as that is, that's also quite gratifying to hear in the selfish right away. Um, when I was working on my second novel, I had a character there who suffered from postnatal depression, and I did a lot of research, and so, and I think that stayed with me for many years. That plus, you know, we all have those sleepless moments where, with young children, where we're not sure what we're doing anymore. Absolutely, and that self-doubt about, you know, wanted to, I mean, I'm a man, but, you know, wanted to be a mother, and then feeling very challenged by that experience and having the kid who won't, the little boy who won't shut up, you know. The huge expectations that women put on themselves or society yeah, put on them. Very I much think. so. Yeah. The, the other thing that occurred to me when I was reading it was the, I know she isn't particularly a drowned woman ghost, but the drowned woman, well, there's two things. First of all, the drowned woman as in the ring and things like that, yeah. um, that image that people seem to find particularly frightening yes yes i i think the main thing i wanted about her though was her stillness um because everything else is so loud and busy and hectic in the narrator's head Uh, so it's well the second person so in the main character's head um yes so i wanted the stillness as a comparison to all all that kind of static and violence going on inside of her that's where she came from for me Originally, I had her more as a sort of statue than anything else, but I sort of wanted her to have a suggestion of life. What does she want? What does the ghost want? I think that's what um, the protagonist is trying to figure out throughout the story. And there is some ambiguity about the ending, but I think the ghost may represent the protagonists, either their worst fears or their worst desires. So. Mm. Yes, she wants to, she, she almost wants to, she wants, she wants a kind of taking over. Absolutely. So if we're being very Freudian about this, what we'd say would, you know, because th- this 
desire to be free of the baby is intolerable to her, that she has to split off part of herself and make that the make that dark shadow, as I think you said, part of herself, the the thing that takes the baby rather than her herself. I don't know if that's what you think. You've just described that so beautifully. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, you know, these are well known. So you've done your, your homework. These are well known sort of defense mechanisms and things. And of course, the ambiguity of the is the is the protagonist insane or are they being visited by some spirit is because the first one we ever did in the classic ghost stories podcast was the yellow wallpaper by charlotte perkins gilman i love that story so much i think if you know if there's one of those stories that you really wish you could have written yeah very creepy oh it's amazing you'd have to come from a different era to write it but uh, yes i've reread that a number of times over the years it's one of my favorites and of course, the other one that we read was the Guy de Maupassant one, the Horla. I insist on calling it the Horla rather than le Horla. But uh, yeah, is he is he insane or is he being visited by some kind of thing that's preying on him? A good pedigree for this kind of story. Absolutely, I think that there's a lot a lot of um, what do, what do you trust in a ghost story? Do you trust the narrator's mind? Do you trust the author? Even what's what's reality? And I think ghost stories are like about that in many ways and the other thing is what about this husband tell me about him well the husband he's absent so he's and also he is only seen through the protagonist's perspective so perhaps it's a, a, a slanted angle he's impatient and he's absent and you're not quite sure why that is you know, mm. he's obviously working away but she's definitely not getting the support or feels she can ask for the support that she's probably needing. I mean, he comes over as quite dismissive and, as you say, absent, but is he an, an in, in, intolerant, really? And so there is the hint that he may be having some fun on his own while, he, while she's putting up with... Um, there, doing, is, yeah. there is that hint there. But again, it, it possibly could be paranoia, but possibly might not be yeah so. <laughs> ambiguity again absolutely yeah keep keep them on the toes as a, a more writerly comment the choice of the second person though tell me what was going on when you when you decided to use the you i don't use um second person that often but i and i th- probably wouldn't go near it in a novel but i think sometimes for shorter short stories it can be really effective i'm not really sure where that one came about other other stories where I've used second person, I've, I've, it's been a deliberate decision. But that I just started writing it like that, and I'm not sure why. I mean, I suppose it helps with the sense of distance that the characters may be feeling from herself, and yeah. also it's quite nice to put a reader very uncomfortably in a protagonist's shoes like that. Mm. No, I thought it was interesting. So, in general terms, broadening it out a little bit. Tell me about how, how attached are you to the ghost story? And a ghost story is a sub, sub-genre of a horror story. You know, wh- where's your interest in this? I, when I was little, I was very lucky to have a dad with lots of brilliant, dusty old bookshelves, which I raided. And he had lots of things like M.R. James and Arthur Macken, um, lots of classic sort of anthologies as well. And he also used to let me stay up very late with him and watch horror films that I probably shouldn't have been allowed to (laughs) which I'm grateful for forever and you know then as a teenager I did the usual Stephen King and stuff and then I have not all my writing has been in a horror genre but 
as I've got older, I've sort of come back to it more and more because I do think it's so interesting psychologically. But also I do, part of me does just quite like the garish thrills as well. Whereas my early novels and quite a lot of my early short stories are kind of sort of literary thriller crossovers. Mm -hmm. I've got more towards horror. So my last novel that came out in November, We Wait, is proper haunted house story. Oh, sounds great. Quite unambiguous ghosts, actually. (laughs) Yes, I really, really love love writing it. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's been lovely to just immerse myself in that without feeling like I have to be doing something more literary. For me, one of the joys of writing things and, and, and actually reading the stories out as well is conjuring the emotions in, in people. And maybe I yeah. just like to scare people. I don't know. I think it's probably all of that. You like to scare them. You like to upset them. Well, I'm, not, I'm saying you. I, it's yeah, genuine. one, yeah. Surprise <laughs> them. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, I think it's that feeling of connection that when somebody writes back to you or talks to you about your books and they've they've obviously really connected it's it's a great thing but it also is a little thrill if you somebody's genuinely scared I think that comes from being quite small and telling ghost stories at the back of the bus well your your ghost in the in the dining room's definitely she's definitely disturbing one of the things that uh, jumped out were were her toenails (laughs) was that on purpose or well, I did get slightly obsessed about her feet because yes. I think um, it was the one clear detail. I mean, there's a bit of, I do go on about her hair a bit as well, but I think mm. the feet, I think because of the stillness again, it was like I, I, I sort of wanted to focus on those still feet and right. I didn't want them to be very nice feet. Yeah, that's true. They didn't come across as very nice feet. <laughs> Good. A poor lady. So, okay. So moving on, we talked a bit about some of your other writing, the novel that's come out. How can people get hold of your things, how, how, your um, work? Okay, so my, my, um, my latest novel is published by Eerie Press and everything I've done is available through Amazon and, and Waterstones and things. But if people are wanting to support independent publishers, they can buy direct from Eerie Press's website. Um, with my older work, the previous novels in my short story collection they're from Weathervane Press which is another indie but again they're also available through the usual channels okay and I will put a link in the show notes to the at least the UK and US sites so people can navigate from there brilliant thank you so much great talking to you it's really nice to talk about stories and the making of stories Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a total pleasure. You're welcome. So that was Megan Taylor. As I said, I put some links to her stories in the show notes. So if you click on those, you can get through and buy some of her work. I wanted to say thanks to all the supporters of the podcast. We're still growing. I don't know when it'll stop. I guess it's got to stop sometime, but maybe not yet. Anyway, so the latest record is that Remittance Girl, at Remittance Girl, bought me 10 coffees. Can you imagine that? I was totally wired after drinking 10 coffees. It used to make me laugh, actually. I remember when I was in America, I think, there was a sign saying, um, you buy seven coffees, you get one free. Like, really? Or there's one I saw in London, actually, 
buy six pies, get one free. Really, you couldn't eat another pie after six, I wouldn't have thought. But then somebody explained to me you could be buying them for your friends, which I hadn't thought about. Anyway, there we are. So thanks very much. I really like doing interviews with living writers. If any of you out there have a story that you'd like me to read out, I'd love to hear from you. And we can put some new modern stuff in with the classic ghost stories because people seem to like it, that mix. Anyway, so thanks for that. Call to action. Call to action. This is going to be another support one because we bumped up into Captivate FM's new podcast influencer group, which is great. It just costs more money to be in. So if anybody could support the podcast through either Patreon or buy me a coffee, that would be fantastic. I hope you're all well. I hope you're enjoying the stories. I hope you're all safe. And by the time this comes out, we may all be out of lockdown. Who knows? But as long as we stay safe, that's the important thing. Okay, so I'll speak to you next week.